Sweet. All right. Uh, before we start, uh, I want to explain we're doing something a little bit different tonight, and I'll explain that to you in just a second. But first, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll get in, okay? Dear Father, I thank you for all the people in this room, uh, people who could be doing a lot of other things tonight, um, but uh, are here to, to hear from your word. And Lord, I pray that you would grant us this mercy of speaking to us right now. You would open our hearts and uh, our eyes to the gospel. God, that you would make it more real to us. That you would give us a greater uh, taste and a, a hunger and a love for your word tonight. pray your Holy Spirit would help me to, to speak clearly. I ask you that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So normally, I said we're doing things different in, in two ways. Uh, the first is this, that um, normally we try to go deep, and tonight we're going to go wide. Um, what I mean by that is normally on a, uh, on a Thursday night, we take one text, as, as Scott said, we're going all the way through 2 Corinthians this year, and we take one text and we try to go deep into that text. We try to dig into that. So one of us will stand up here and teach kind of verse by verse through the text, talking about things like historical background and context and sometimes the original language and all of those kinds of things to give us a, a real understanding of the text itself. And then a second person will stand up here after a, a brief break, will stand up and take one theme from that text, um, something's a uh, theological theme or an applicational theme, and then talk in depth on that for a little bit. Um, and, and we'll explain a little bit more of our interpretive process when we come to it. We have these cards up here that kind of that lay that out for you if you'd like to grab one of those after we're done to see it. But the next one we teach, we'll talk about it. So normally we go deep. Tonight we're going wide. Instead of just one text, I want to talk about the whole text. I want to talk about all of the Bible tonight. And uh, so those of you guys who are note takers are going to be probably frustrated because we're going to be moving fast tonight. The second thing that's different is, as I said, usually one of us gets up and speaks the first, uh, does the first half, and then a different person gets up for the second half. Tonight, you got to just stare at my face all night. So I apologize for you new people. It's not usually this bad. Um, but tonight, it's just going to be me doing the first and then the second half. So... Tim Keller is one of my favorite authors, and he has this line that I think is really interesting and really helpful. He says this, that most people think that the Bible is one long list of rules with, with stories sprinkled in to illustrate. Most people, when they think of the Bible, they think of it as this long list of rules or, or suggestions or commands or ideas for how to live your life with some stories sprinkled in to help illustrate those things. You know, David and Goliath and, and Daniel and the lion's den, stuff that can keep you interested in VBS so then we can get to the rules, right? Um, but actually, he says, the Bible is in reality the exact opposite of that. The Bible is actually one big story with rules sprinkled in to illustrate. And most people don't see that. Most people don't know that when they read this book. Don't see the big, grand narrative that is running from Genesis to Revelation. And because they don't see that, they miss a lot. They miss some of the larger themes that are running through here. They miss the bigness of Scripture. And I believe they miss the fullness of the Gospel because of that. 
And that's important. That's important to us. I believe that's important to all Christians. But as Scott said, this idea of a gospel-centered life is one of our big things. And, and we want you to be able to live a gospel-centered life. Well, in order to do that, first of all, you need to understand what the gospel is. And you got to see it for all it is in the bigness. So tonight what I want to do is tell you uh, not a Bible story. I want to tell you the Bible story. I want to tell you from beginning to end how that story goes. I want to talk to you about how that connects us to 2 Corinthians 1.20 for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And I want to talk about what that looks like um, played out into a gospel-centered life. So, here we go. Um, the Bible, primarily, if you look at the grand narrative, if you look at the overarching story of it, it unfolds in a series of covenants. A series of these... Um, relational promises, these covenants that God makes with either a person or a group of people. And what you will see as you read through and you look at it from 10,000 feet is that these covenants actually narrow down in their scope as the story goes. They get smaller and smaller and the focus gets smaller to drive us to the main character in the story. Um, it starts in the beginning with God. And God creates the entire universe and he reigns over it in both glory and in joy. And at the pinnacle of God's creation, he creates human beings. And the first covenant falls uh, under the name of Adam, though Adam and Eve are both in it, but usually people call it the Adamic covenant. Um, and, and basically, Adam and Eve here represent all of humanity. So this is the covenant God makes with human beings in general, all of us, at the beginning. But, but what, what we see when God creates Adam and Eve is that he creates them, it says, as the pinnacle of, their, of his creation, he creates them in his image. That is a big idea. The kind of theological term is imago Dei. The image of God is in every human being. And we could spend a whole night, maybe a series, talking about what it means to be in the image of God, what the imago Dei means. We don't have time for that. So I just want to give you three things, if I could kind of break it down into three things, what it means to be made in the image of God. It means, first of all, human beings, unlike any other part of creation, represent God. Um, when Genesis was written, at the time that Genesis was written, if a king back in that day from one country came over and conquered a country, another country, two or three hundred miles away, then he would then be king over both of these areas. He's king over country A and country B. But the question is, how do people in country B know who their ruler is? How do people in country B know who they submit to? In a day before um, internet and a day before newspapers and a day before photography and, and phones and all that stuff, how do you know when you live that far away who your king is? If he comes into town, how do you know when you're supposed to bow? How do you know who you obey? The answer is this very word that Genesis uses to describe human beings. The king sets up an image of himself in that country be it a statue or a picture. And when they set up an image, it was a way of saying, this image displays to you who is in charge here. This image shows who rules over this area. The king puts his image there and everybody can look and go, that's our king. That's the one who's in charge. That's the one we follow. This is the idea that human beings are made for. When it says that we are made in the image, we represent him. We are designed to display the glory of God. That when people look at us, they ought to be able to go, oh, that's who the king is. 
The enemy will say, oh, that's who is in charge here. The glory of God ought to be displayed in us. So the first thing is they represent, but that idea of a king setting up an image actually leads us into the second thing, and that is human beings, like no other part of creation, are designed to rule over it on God's behalf. That we are designed to care for the creation that God has made and to cultivate it and to take the raw materials and make something greater out of it, ruling under the authority of God. The third thing we see that human beings do is they relate to God. They can actually know Him and have a relationship with Him. That's what separates human beings from every other part of creation. Now, question, what is the very first command given in the Bible? Does anybody know? Okay, I heard it right here. Um, Many people jump to, uh, the first one is, don't eat that fruit. Okay, but the first command is not actually don't eat that fruit. The first command is the one Kelsey just mentioned, and it's found in Genesis 1, 27, 28. Um, Jared, can you go ahead and read that for us real loud? I like the throat clearing there, though. It gets us all prepared. That's good. All right. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, there you go. So you, you caught it there. He says he created them in his image, but then it says this, and this is worth notice, noting, male and female, he created them both in his image. That's actually a pretty radical statement. In the day when Genesis is written, and women were considered maybe a little bit above like cattle and other property that you might have, women belonged to the man in the household. And, and they were viewed as lesser than, but in the middle of that culture, Genesis is written and says, no, 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 male and female, both equally made in the image of God, both equally valuable. That's a huge and, and countercultural statement when those words were first written. But then it goes on and says this, be fruitful and multiply. That's the first, so the first command is not don't eat that fruit, the first command is have babies, right? It says, be fruitful and multiply. And the idea is that this image that is where we represent God, the, the goal is for that image to be multiplied out into the whole world. That the image of God and His representation ought to be moving all over the world to the entire earth is covered with the image of God in humanity. But then it also says this, have dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. That is, rule. We saw that. And the other thing we see in this is that God is in conversation with them. He's speaking with them. So he relates all three of these things taking place in that passage. This is what human beings are designed to do. But instead of doing that, we decided to rebel. And I do say we, not just Adam and Eve. Every human being since said, rather than working under the authority of God, I want to usurp the authority. I want to have it for myself. I want to live the way I want to live. And that is the first temptation, right? If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. And that's what we fell into. That's what we bit into is that desire to call the shots, to control my own destiny and my own fate. And when human beings did that, the image was broken. Now, it's still there. But it's flawed. It's distorted. We, we, we no longer represent God the way we were designed to. The, the best illustration of this is a mirror. If you set up a mirror in front of yourself and you look into it, you can see your image in that mirror. 
But if you take a rock and you throw it at the mirror, then it spider webs out. And, and you can still see your image in it, but it's all distorted now. It doesn't display it properly. That's what happened when sin came into the world. And, and now human beings no longer rule under God's authority. Now they keep trying to rule for themselves. They keep trying to take control of themselves. And lastly, human beings can no longer relate to God because there's a barrier there. Our sin has separated us from a holy God. And so the story of the Bible revolves around answering these three questions. All of them coming from, this, all of them coming from these ideas right here. The first question is this. Can the glory of God be properly reflected through people again? Can the glory of God be truly reflected through people again? Can that image be restored? Number two is, will the rule of God be established in people again? Now, we believe that God is always in control. He always has authority. But the question is, will it be recognized and submitted to by people again? Will, will the rule of God be established in people again? And number three, how can a holy God live in relationship with sinful people again? This is a key problem because you and I, we were made to know Him, to be in relationship with Him. But sinful people cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. And here we want to, get, we want to make sure that we're clear. The reason that sinful people cannot be in the presence of a holy God is not because sin is like some kind of virus and God might get sick or it might be too icky for him or anything like that. No, the reason is the same reason why a mosquito cannot fly into Niagara Falls. Okay? If a mosquito flies into Niagara Falls, guarantee you, Niagara Falls is going to be fine. The mosquito, on the other hand, is going to be in a world of hurt. The, the mosquito is going to be um, pulverized, is going to be decimated by that. That's what happens to sin in the presence of absolute pure holiness. And that's what happens when a person marked by sin steps into that. And so the very thing that I am made for, I can no longer have because the very thing I'm made for kills me now. Everything I'm made for will uh, end me in a moment if I step into it. And as we begin to look ahead in the story, by the way, this is Genesis 1 through 11, Adam and his descendants, Adam and Eve and their descendants, and, and that kind of flows into 6 and 9. As you begin to look ahead into Genesis 6, we see that this idea of rebellion and sin becomes the dominant theme of humanity. So much so that Genesis 6 says this, that God looked down and saw that every thought and every inclination of man was wicked all the time. And there was nothing in them wanting to do right. And so it's at this point that God hits the reset button that we call the flood and decides to start over with Noah. Now, actually, most people will tell you that this is another covenant. It's called the Noahic covenant. And I'm not really including it here. The reason why is because the Noahic covenant is basically just a redo of the first one. He tells them the same thing in Genesis 9. Uh, that is, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over the earth and all that stuff. So I don't necessarily include it in here. But as the story moves forward in Genesis 11, we see that even after this reset, even after starting with Noah, things don't get any better. In Genesis 11, man begins to build the Tower of Babel with the idea being we will gain glory for ourselves. Everyone will look at it and see what we did. Everyone will talk about us and the idea is I still want to be ruler. I still want to be in charge. And so what God does in Genesis 12 is he narrows the focus down. Narrows the focus down from all of humanity to one man and that man's family, that man's descendants. The man's name is Abraham. And from everything we know, 
Abraham, from what we can tell, did not know God until Genesis 12, which takes place, by the way, in roughly 2000 B.C. In roughly 2000 B.C., God comes to this man who's been growing up in the area called Ur, and he's been worshiping idols just like his family all his life. And then out of nowhere, this God called Yahweh comes to him and says, Hey, Abraham, I want you to know I'm the only true God. And I want you to follow me to a land that you, you've never seen before, that you've never known. I want you to walk away from your family, everything you have, and I want you to come to this promised land. I want you to follow me. And he says, if you do that, then I will be your God, and you and your family will be my people. And then he says this crazy promise, and I guarantee you Abraham had no idea what he meant by it, and I think for most of history people did not know what he meant by it. If you do that, he says, I will bless you, and I will bless the whole world through you. I do not think Abraham understood what this was about. What could he mean by bless the whole world through me? So we see what Abraham is is almost a repeat of Adam. Adam's job is to rule the world. That gets uh, thrown off. And so we start with Abraham and his job is to bless the world. And he and his descendants are going to now be the truest image bearers, the one who display God as they ought to, who try to rule under his authority and who relate to him like nobody else. This is Genesis 12 through 50 is the story of Abraham's family. And Abraham, even though he's a good dude, he's also flawed. And so are his uh, sons and his grandsons. They are flawed as well. And they make mistakes, but God continues to use them and to work through them, to work through his purposes through their family. What we find is that Abraham's great-grandson, uh, Jacob, ends up taking his family down to Egypt to escape a famine. And they end up staying there. They lived there for a few hundred years. And, and uh, the... the the descendants of Abraham begin to grow in Egypt until they're numerous, but then the Egyptians enslave them and make them, make them um, work for them and make them these slaves in the land. God enlists this plan to come and rescue them, which becomes a huge theme in the Bible. And he does it through this one man whose name is Moses. And so now we come to what is known as the Mosaic Covenant. Um, this would be Exodus, and we'll actually walk us all the way through Judges. Moses, now it's debated actually, there are two dates, and people aren't sure. It depends on how you number the generations in the Bible, how you count up the generations, and it depends a little bit on the archaeological evidence. There are two major dates given. The first is 1446, that's the early date, um, what they call the high date, and then the low date is 1290. Uh, as to when the exodus takes place, when the people are brought out of Egypt. And God calls Moses to bring them. And so now the focus is narrowed down, not just to Abraham's descendants, the Jews, but specifically to those who choose to enter into this law covenant with God, with Yahweh. He says those who decide, he, God gives them the law at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments and all these other laws. And he says, if you will join in this, then same thing. I will be your God. You will be my people. And he says this, you will be to me a kingdom of priests. Now, a kingdom implies if, there's gonna have, if you're going to have a king, then, or I'm sorry, if you're going to have a kingdom, there you go, I already gave it away. You've got to have a king. Uh, the king is who? Not Moses. The king is God himself. 
Yahweh is the king of the people. And he says, though, you're a kingdom of priests. Now, a priest's job is to display, is to um, be a go-between for God and humanity. So they represent humanity to God and God to humanity. This is what the Israelites are supposed to be. They are supposed to be the image bearers that when all the nations look at Israel, they ought to be able to see God. That when they see the way Israel acts, the reason God gives them this law with all these purity rules and all these things is that people ought to be able to look at Israel and go, oh, that's different. Oh, that's who the king is. That's who we ought to follow and worship. They do a terrible job of it, though. They, they never quite get it down. They struggle all the way through just like I would have if I was one of them. But the Mosaic Law is really interesting. It gives us the most concrete expression to date, at least up to this point, the most concrete expression of your condition and my condition, of the human condition, and that is this. That as human beings, we are deeply loved and deeply sinful. We are deeply loved by God, but the problem is that we are deeply sinful. One of the greatest representations of this fact is the tabernacle. And later it would be um, the temple when it becomes something more permanent. Now, the tabernacle is interesting because God takes these people out of Egypt. He leads them into the wilderness and he's taking them on the way to the promised land. And he tells them that unlike so many other gods back then, he is not going to be a God that lives at a distance from his people. He is not going to be a God that lives up on the mountains that you have to go there to maybe meet. He's not going to be a God that dwells out in the sea or up in the sky. He's going to be a God that lives right in the middle of his people. And everywhere they stop in the wilderness, they set up camp, and right in the middle of it, they set up the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is there as this place where God dwells in the middle of His people, longing to be with them. But the problem still remains. We still haven't answered the question, how can a holy God live with a sinful people? Well, the answer to the question is He can't. Not without something to take care of that sin. And so they institute the system of sacrifice. And the idea is that in order for the Israelites to be able to be in relationship with God, something has to take care of that sin that separates them. And so they would set up this system of sacrifice. God sets it up where a Israelite could come and bring a ram or a goat or a lamb or a bull and sacrifice it on behalf of their sins. And so now my sins go on that goat and God punishes my sins on the goat. The goat dies in my place so that my sins can be taken away and I can still be in relationship with him. And yet, that still doesn't cover it. Still doesn't take care of it. It still does not establish the kind of relationship we're made for. And the reason we know is because of this one word, the veil. See, the tabernacle was broken up into three key areas. I think I can drop. Um, tabernacle's broken up into these three key areas. Um, you have around it the courtyard. And the courtyard is where the altar sits. And that's where the sacrifices are actually made. That's where the priests do the work there. And then when you first step into, uh, into it, there's this big room right here that some call the holy place. And that was a place where the incense was burned. And that was where this, there was uh, this table with these loaves of bread on it. And then beyond that, there was this perfectly square room in the back that they called the holy place. Where the most holy, I'm sorry, the, yeah, the most holy place or the holy of holies. And in the middle of this, the Ark of the Covenant was, um, was sitting, and it was said that the presence of God dwelled over the Ark of the Covenant. But there was this really giant curtain, this thick veil that kept anybody from going in there. No one could step in there. See, 
The priests alone could step into the courtyard and offer sacrifices. The priests alone could go into this first room. Nobody could go into this back room except for one man and only one day a year. That was the high priest, and it was on the Day of Atonement. And he would walk in there with the blood of a goat, and he would sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant as a way of making atonement for the people's sins. But he couldn't even go in there until he first offered a sacrifice for his own sins. And when he did it, I guarantee you he did it gingerly. He did it softly. He did it gently because you do not just waltz into the presence of Yahweh when you are a sinful man, even if you have tried to make atonement on your behalf. And this veil was a constant reminder that though God has longed to be with his people, there is still a sin that separates us from it, and we cannot be with him for that reason. So the people of God try to follow him somewhat, but, but God continually reminds them that they are stiff-necked and rebellious and they continue to, to blow it. They continue to kind of pull themselves away from them. When they arrive in the promised land, Moses doesn't get to go in. Joshua leads them in. And then they are led by a series of judges. The last one is a guy by the name of Samuel. Now, if you were at Sunnybrook, those of you who go to Sunnybrook, if you were there on Sunday, this is where we were. Samuel's in there, and he's the last judge ruling over the people. And the people start to look around when they get in the nation, and they start to notice all the nations around them. And all of those guys have a king. And they say to Samuel, we, we want a king just like everybody else. Samuel says to them, you have one. God is your king. No, 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 no. We want a real king. We, we want a king we can see. We want a king that we can put our faith in, that we know is going to be there with us, that we can see with our own eyes, that we can trust him to protect us and to take care of us. And so they reject Yahweh as king, and, and God, in his grace, gives them a king anyway. The first one is a guy by the name of Saul. He does not do a very good job. And so God gives them a second one, and this is considered kind of the key. This is, this is the, um, the epitome, uh, according to Israel's history, of what a king ought to be, and that is a guy by the name of David. And from here on out, the story narrows down to the line of David, specifically the kings. And this is where most of the focus goes. We're in 1 Samuel all the way until 2 Chronicles. And David is crowned king in, uh, actually, we, we think it's actually 1010 B.C. That he gets crowned king. And so David reigns as king, and, and the story focuses in on him because the kings, specifically David, have a unique role in reflecting the image of God. They represent God and his glory to the people like, like other people haven't. And of course, they rule on God's behalf. They rule the people there. And not only that, but David appears to have a unique kind of relationship with the people or with God that people before him did not have. And there's this really kind of interesting story where one day David is sitting in his palace and he looks out the window and, and he sees something that he, he's seen all the time before but hadn't really thought much about. What he sees is the tabernacle. He sees this tent sitting out there and he goes, man, something's not right about this. It's not okay that here I am in this beautiful, elaborate, amazing palace and God's living out there in a tent. 
So this is not right. I, I need to fix this. And, and so he makes this plan to build God this amazing big temple. And he, and he wants to start getting supplies ready. And he, he starts making these awesome plans. And then all of a sudden, God sends Nathan the prophet to David and says, Hey, um, that's cute, David, but I think I'm good. Thanks, but no thanks, is essentially what God says to him. He says, actually, I don't need you to build me one. Three reasons. Uh, number one, I'll let your son Solomon do that for me later. Uh, number two, I'm God and I don't really need a house. Um, and number three, he says, how about instead of you building me a house, I think I'm going to build you one. And he doesn't mean by that I'm going to build you another building. He means I'm going to build up your household. And there's this crazy um, line that God says to David in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, he says, I'm going to build up your house, and I promise you this, David, that you will always have a descendant sitting on the throne. That the line of David, that the line of David is going to rule forever. This is a crazy promise. This is an overwhelming promise and a beautiful one. Here's the problem. Um, David um, really screws up a few times. Uh, we're talking about adultery, we're talking about murder, we're talking about pride, we're talking about being a terrible father, and David is like one of the best kings they ever had. That's like, that's like cream of the crop right there, murder and adultery. That's like the best guy they could hope for. Um, it only gets worse from there. And so David um, seeks to follow God, and he tries, but he himself messes up, and his, his, uh, his son Solomon, um, even though David... Even in David's sin, he was at least repentant. But Solomon starts off following God, and then he ends up with a divided heart. That is, he sort of wants to go after Yahweh, but he sort of wants to go after all these other things, including other gods. And so God essentially says to him, fine, you want to serve me with a divided heart? I'm going to give you a divided kingdom. And what happens is, as punishment for Solomon's waywardness, the kingdom ends up getting split into a north side, which still remains with the name of Israel, and a south side, which is known by Judah. Now, the northern side is made up of ten tribes. That's the larger one. Uh, Judah is only made up of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And this is the lineage that David's goes through, is the southern kingdom, Judah. Now we've got a problem, because already it sounds like the promise in 2 Samuel is coming apart. Because David doesn't even have a descendant on the throne for most of Israel. He only rules these two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. His lineage does at this point. And so it already feels like things are starting to go bad there. Now, um, things from Solomon just get worse and worse. And the period of the kings becomes perhaps the darkest in the history of Israel. As you walk through, um, it gets really bad and it gets really bleak. And at the exact same time that the kings are operating, the prophets come into play. So if you read your Bible, you'll read um, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and then like Ezra and Nehemiah, and later you get to the prophets. But actually, chronologically, the prophets overlay with Second Kings through Second Chronicles. This is, at the same time those things are happening, the prophets come, and they begin to come to the kings, and they come to the countries, and they warn them, listen, you are straying away from God, you are walking into idolatry, you are leaving Him, and if you do that, punishment is coming your way, judgment is coming your way, repent, and they don't really do it. The North, king, uh, the North Kingdom only ever has bad kings. 
they get worse and worse and worse, and every king seems worse than that. And so they, they, they just like dive headfirst into their sin, never listen to the prophets. And as consequence, in the year 722 B.C., the mighty Assyrian Empire comes in and conquers Israel and exiles it out takes the people away and wipes them out and leads them off into the rest of their kingdom. And actually, um, we to this day do not know what has happened to them. Um, actually, we, we sort of know. What happened is they got spread throughout the empire and they basically assimilated in and then kind of to put it crudely, they, they bred out. Okay? And so they're, to this day, they're called the lost tribes of Israel. And we don't know what happened to them, except for we know that they basically just kind of assimilated in with the rest of the kingdoms. And Now, Judah did a little bit better because they, their pattern would be more like bad king, bad king, bad king, good king. And the good king would kind of course correct. And then you'd have bad kings and it'd start going bad again. And then you get a good king and kind of course correct. So they lasted a little bit longer, but they fell into the same trap as their brothers and sisters to the north. And so in 586 B.C., the Babylonian Empire comes in and conquers them. And when it does that, it destroys the city of Jerusalem, destroying the throne of David, and it destroys the temple, the very place where sacrifices were made for our sins, for their sins, the very place where they had their sins wiped away so that they could know and be in relationship with God. Both of those things are gone, and within 500 years, it would appear that the promise to David has already become untrue. Now, there are some really cool bright spots in this, too. Because at the same time that the prophets are prophesying doom and destruction, there are these little points where they look far ahead, past the destruction, past the judgment, past all the sins and all the bad things, and they look to this amazing moment where God is going to come and make things right. And they keep talking about this person that God is going to send. And they don't really have a name for him quite yet. There's a number of different names that get thrown around. They start calling him in later years, they start calling this person the anointed one. Or the chosen one. And the word, I didn't know Anthony was here. Um, uh, they, start calling him, they start calling him the anointed one. The word, <laughs> the word is, okay, so the, the word can be translated Messiah or in the Greek. Later, when everyone is speaking Greek, the word is, trans, or is Christos, which means Christ. And so this anointed one, they say, is going to come and he's going to make everything right. He's going to redeem the people of God. He's going to bring them back. And, and so they start looking forward to this day. And then there's some um, other kind of weird prophecies that start going alongside of it, though, that, that, that don't seem to mesh and that don't seem to quite make sense. One's like Isaiah 53. And Kelsey, I have you reading Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 6. Read that for us. Okay, so they, they know that there's supposed to be this anointed one who's going to come and restore the kingdom and redeem the people of God and make David's throne right again. But they also know from Isaiah that there's this guy who's going to be what they start calling the suffering servant. And they can't tell if it's the same person or not because everybody knows, of course, that when the Messiah comes, everybody's going to love him and cheer for him. And he's going to be a winner and he's going to get things done. But Isaiah starts talking about this guy that everyone is going to look at, look at and despise. And they're going to consider him smitten by God. And they're going to consider him hated. And he's going to be a kind of person that you turn your face away from when you see. Because it's so awkward and so embarrassing to see someone in such a low estate. And they go, that, that can't possibly be the same guy, right? 
They say he's going to look, Isaiah says the reason he's going to look like he's been um, like smitten by God is because, uh, Isaiah says, God is going to take all the sins of his people and he's going to lay it on this one guy and this one person is going to be punished for all the sins of the people. He says um, he will be wounded, he'll be pierced for our transgressions and that the punishment that brought us peace will be laid upon him. And they can't quite figure it out, but it sounds... Sounds crazy. And then there's this other really interesting prophecy that takes place in Ezekiel 36, where Ezekiel steps in and says, do you know why the image doesn't work anymore? Do you know why you can't represent God and rule and relate like you're supposed to? Because, he says, you don't have the ability. You don't have it in you. And Ezekiel, if he were alive today, would stand in here and would be able to say the same thing to us. You don't have it in you. To live out the image. Your heart is too hard, but Ezekiel says to the, to the Babylonian captives, those who are sitting in Babylon, he tells them, there will be a day when God is going to come and he's going to put a new heart in you. And he's going to give you a heart that's going to want to obey him. He's going to give you a heart that's going to delight in doing what is right. And he's going to give you a heart that knows what to do. And he's going to do this by putting his own spirit in you. He says, this crazy prophecy, I will give you a heart of flesh and I will place my spirit in you and cause you to want to follow me, cause you to want to obey me, cause you to be able to do what you were designed to do. But then we hit the year 400 B.C. And in 400 B.C., everything goes dark. They call it the 400 years of silence. Leading right up to it, the Jews had actually been set free from Babylon, and they went back, and they, and they tried to build Jerusalem again, and it, it was cool, but it, it wasn't quite what it was supposed to be. And, and they tried to build the temple again, but it wasn't anything like it used to be. And, and so they thought maybe something was happening, but then nothing. And then 400 years where nobody hears from God again. And God doesn't seem to be speaking through the prophets anymore. And He doesn't seem to be giving us any more scripture. And He doesn't seem to be doing miraculous things. And it looks in this moment like every promise that God has made is going to fall flat. There's no way that God can bless the world through Abraham's people because His people barely exist anymore. There's no way that they can be a kingdom of priests because they've been sinful people who've pushed against God all this time. The tabernacle and temple are nothing what they used to be. Uh, it doesn't look like God is going to rescue them fully. And of course, David could never have a descendant rule forever because he doesn't even have a descendant on the throne at all anymore. And it looks like everything has come undone in this moment until this messenger shows up in front of this Jewish peasant girl with the most bizarre no news you've ever heard in your life. And we're going to talk about that after a two-minute break. So take a quick break, and there's a bathroom back there if you need it, and then we'll jump back into this. Announcing putt-putt and mini-golf, right? Those are two things. Those are the same things. Hot putt and the far retreat. Yes. Hot putt and game night. Hot putt and game night. Yeah. I can also throw in far retreat, or you can do that three. No, I think what we said actually. Do you have the? Do, do we hand out these things? Yes. You're doing so. Yeah. You're actually saying briefly game night and putt putt. Make sure when you say putt putt, say three dollars gets a meal. NSF, and then say, and we want you to be looking ahead because we're not going to get to tell them about it until then. We want you to know about fall retreat. And so stress that one more. Kind of breeze through the first two. So 
tell them, tell them you can pull this out, and I want to, I want to point out three of them to you, sir. So I'm going to say a couple of announcements and make sure you get my attention so I don't forget that. Yeah. Awesome. Sweet. Okay. Hey, uh, Alec wants to let you know about a couple of, a few things that are coming up before, uh, before we jump into the next part of this. Hey guys, my name is Alec Sheets. I'm the intern and we'll be doing a lot of fun stuff. We have these in your seats if you want to go ahead and pull them out. There is a, uh, a calendar. Some of the events have already passed, but I just want to tell you about three that are coming up real quick. So one... Tomorrow is a game night right here at 7 o'clock. I'd love to see all you guys there. We're going to be playing a game called Pharisees, which I'm, I always want to play. Okay. Uh, Moses. Yes, there is Moses. Um, two is Putt-Putt on Sunday at 6. It is $3. So we're reducing the price. I'm hoping you get as many as we can there. And feeding you guys for $3. So it's at the White Barnes Estates. You can just type in White Barn in your maps, and it'll take you there. And the last one that we want you guys to know of, and we're going to start pitching right now because it's so awesome, is the Fall Retreat. How many of you guys have went to the Fall Retreat? Yeah, Fall Retreat. Yeah. It's great. And we want all you guys to be there. If you want to go ahead and sign up, you can text the number right here, text Retreat to it. And it is $10 for freshmen and $20 for everyone else. And just for... It's, oh yeah, thank you, um, September 3rd and 4th, on, right here. Um, and before you leave, we are going to have a cereal bar right over here, so stay around because we're trying to bribe you guys to stay so we get to know all of you. All right, thank you. Awesome, thank you, sir. <laughs> Very well done, very well done. All right, so before we get to the news, that the messenger brought to the peasant girl. First, I want to take you back to those three questions. Those first three questions that I said the Bible is seeking to answer. Can the glory of God be properly reflected through people again? Will the rule of God be established in people again? And how can a holy God live in relationship with sinful people again? I want to submit to you this idea that I believe to be true, that it's not only the Bible asking those questions. That actually, I believe this, that... Um, people throughout the history of the world have actually been asking those same three questions. Uh, and it's not a coincidence. I believe they've been asking those questions because those questions are like imprinted into our soul. 
And we may not use exactly those words. Now, most people aren't asking, can the image of God ever be restored in man again? But you know, like the primary question of philosophy from the very beginning until this day is, what is the purpose of life? Why are we here? What am I made for and how can I attain to that? Listen, they don't know it, but in that question, they're bumping up against this truth that there's something I was designed for and I'm not doing it. It's, it's the image of God. They're designed to be representing the glory of God and they know that there's something I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm not doing it. And listen, nobody in the world, if you're not a Christian, nobody's looking around and going, when can the kingdom of God be restored amongst his people? Or will it ever be restored in people? But I guarantee you, every person who's ever existed is able to look around at the world around them and go, this isn't right. And, and, and is anybody going to come and make it right? Is anybody going to come and restore things? How, how can we get the world to live in peace? How can we get rid of crime? How can, we, how can we end poverty? How can we make this the right kind of place that it's supposed to be? They're asking, can the kingdom of God ever be restored? Can the rule and reign of God ever be restored here? And of course, every religion that has ever existed has always been meant to answer this one key question, how do we get to God? It's the same question. How does a holy God live in relation with sinful people? And every religion and every even person who does not believe in spirituality, I was talking to a friend uh, just about a month ago who doesn't, doesn't really want to have anything to do with organized religion, but he believes that each of us is meant to find God in, himself, in, in ourselves. And, and I don't really know exactly what he means by that, and honestly, I don't think he knows what he means by that either. But he's asking the same question, how do I do that? How do I get connected to the divine that is in me? The world, I believe, has through all history been asking those same three questions. And this is, like I said, not by coincidence, the very thing that the Bible is seeking to answer from front to back. So, the messenger shows up to this Jewish peasant girl, and these are the words that he gives to her in Luke 1, verses 30 through 33. Connor, go ahead and read that. Okay, you hear it. He will, he, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over his house forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, here's where we discover that the entire time, all the way back from Genesis, from Genesis all the way through to the end, the entire time, the story has been narrowing the focus to bring us down all the way to, <coughs> excuse me, to one person. To one man. The whole point of the narrowing is to bring us down to this one single person, and that is Jesus. Now, here's where we want to try to often skip ahead and go to the whole point about him dying for us and, and so we can go to heaven and all that stuff, but you're getting ahead of yourself if you go there because the life actually is really important too. First of all, you get this crazy prophecy that he will sit on the throne of his father David and he will rule forever. Here's where we find out what this promise actually meant. He wasn't saying, when 
David heard this, everybody assumed it meant that David's son is going to rule, and then David's son's son is going to rule, and then that person's son's son is going to rule. And so there will always be a descendant who sits on the throne after the next one dies, or after the last one dies. Actually, the prophecy was meaning that there's actually one person who is going to sit on the throne forever. And that person will rule for all time. And here's where Jesus' life becomes so important. Because when Jesus walks on the earth, we have, for the very first time since Adam decided to take a bite of that fruit, we have, for the very first time, a real, live, actual, pure image bearer. Someone who is doing what human beings were designed to do but could never do all along. Someone who is accurately representing God, accurately displaying His character and His glory wherever He goes. Colossians 1.16 says this, The Son, He, is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of His being or the exact image of His nature. You have someone actually representing Him and of course you have the rule of God being established because Jesus' first words when His ministry begins, at least in Mark 1, is this. The time has come. The kingdom of God is here. Repents and believe the good news and everywhere Jesus goes, the kingdom goes with Him. Everywhere Jesus goes, the rule of God begins to reign over people's lives and the wrong things are made right and things begin to look like they were meant to all the way back in the beginning. And of course, you have in Jesus someone who is finally relating to God has a relationship that is unhindered by sin. Someone who lives in perfect relationship with the Father. Jesus is the image bearer that Adam was supposed to be and never could be. And Jesus is doing all the things that Abraham was supposed to do but wasn't able to do. And all the things that Moses and David and you and I were designed to do, it's finally happening in this one man, Jesus. And the reason it's happening in Jesus is because he's not just a man. John 1.1 1, 1 says this about Jesus, In the beginning was the Word, that's Him, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the idea is that, yes, He is a man, fulfilling all the things that human beings are supposed to do, but He's more than that. He's God Himself. And then John will say this crazy verse in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, except for He doesn't actually use the word dwelt. Does anybody know what actual word He uses there? There we go. I knew from the back we'd get it. <laughs> The word John uses is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. What John is saying is God is back. God is coming and setting up His dwelling amongst His people again. He's here to rescue them again. He's here to redeem them all over again. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. This is kind of the, the interesting difference. This is another Keller line. Every other religion starts with somebody showing up and saying, I have come to help you find God. Christianity is the first one that starts with a guy showing up and saying, I'm God, come to find you. Luke 19.10, I believe. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. I'm God, come to find you. This is how Christianity begins, but... We did not receive Him. For the first time, you actually have someone living out the image that we were all made for, restoring what we were designed to do, and instead of receiving Him, we instead rejected Him, John says. He came to His own, but His own did not receive Him. We rejected and attacked the very restore of the image. And so they nailed Jesus up to a cross, reject Him as King, label Him a criminal, and crucify Him on the cross. But 
when that happens, in that very moment, this really bizarre, um, bizarre event takes place, and that is that the, uh, that the veil that sat there in the most holy place tore right down the middle when Jesus died on the cross. And it was this sign to those who were paying attention that the question that got asked all the way back in Genesis 3, how can a sinful God live, or a holy God live with sinful people again? That question just got answered by removing all the sin, by taking all that away. And now the veil is torn and there's nothing to keep people out of the presence of God anymore because of what just took place, because of the things that happened when that was, um, when that, uh, when Jesus died, Paul says, and I wish I wanted to walk you through Romans 3 verses 21 through 26. We don't have time to walk through it, but here's what the Apostle Paul says. Now a righteousness from God has been made known, a righteousness to which all the law and the prophets, that is, that's kind of like shorthand for the Old Testament, to which the entire Old Testament was pointing us this whole time, Paul says. The whole Old Testament was pointing to this day when this new righteousness would come, and he says you don't get it by being a good person. You get it by placing your faith in Jesus. And he says this, that this righteousness is for all people, not just for Jewish people, not just for people who've got their act together, but it is for all. And so here's the other cool thing that we find out. The whole point of narrowing the scope down for all these years, the whole purpose of bringing it down to this one person was to then blow it back up was to then make way for everybody to be a part of this new covenant, to be in on this thing, to be a part of what is going on. And they declare, the people, uh, the church of God declares that Jesus has come and He has taken on our sins for us, just like the sacrifices that were taking place in the Old Testament. He has done that so that we can now be right with God, so that we can be holy with Him, that He is the Messiah that they were promising forever. The question is, how do they know this? Because, and this is important to know, Jesus was not the first guy to show up in Palestine around this time and say that he was the Messiah. There were actually a number of other guys who came to Palestine and gathered around them a group of people, claimed to be the Messiah, claimed to be the anointed one, got a big following, and then they would get that following and kind of pull them aside, and then they would get together a big army to go after Rome and take over, and Rome would come in and sweep through, crush the rebellion, kill the Messiah, and the movement would end. And then another guy would come and he would claim to be the Messiah and, and he would gather up a group around him and then Rome would come in and crush the rebellion, kill the Messiah, and the movement would end. And then another and another. And then Jesus comes and he goes into Palestine and he starts claiming to be the Messiah and he gathers up a group around you. And then Rome comes in at the request of the Jewish authorities, kills the Messiah. But here's where things are different. This is the only time when the Messiah got killed and then his movement took off. Why? Why, when every other Messiah dies, so does the movement. When this Messiah dies, it grows. Tacitus, the Roman historian, actually writes about this. He talks about, there's this guy named Crestus. He misspells the name. There's this guy named Crestus who, who was gathered up this movement behind him in the region of Judea, and he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, Tacitus says, and put to death. But, and so then the movement kind of quieted it down, but all of a sudden, Tacitus said, it just exploded and took over the whole empire. And Tacitus doesn't know why. But the reason why is because this is the only Messiah that did not stay dead after he was killed. 
because when people saw that he had risen from the grave, they said, no, 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 even though he died, he was still it. He was still the one. We trust and believe that he is making everything right. He's already shown it by his raising from the grave. And so they begin to, uh, they've seen his identity and his work, and they begin to unpack the truths of it. And they say this, that everyone, the church says, anyone who will align themselves with this Messiah, that they get to enter into his death and resurrection and then be a part of his kingdom and become a whole new kind of person. Caleb, do you have Romans 6, 3 through 4 for us? Read that for me. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in Okay, so what Paul says is when a person puts their faith in Jesus, then they get baptized that actually what's happening is they're entering into the death of Jesus. And so all their sins are dying off in that moment. And then they enter into the resurrection of Jesus when they are raised, he says, to walk in newness of life. And so now he says, you get identified with him. You get to be on his team and you have this new kind of life in you. That promise that was given um, to have the Holy Spirit in us makes us new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're going to get there this year. We're actually going to spend two weeks on it because it's so awesome. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So in February, I got to, I can't remember if I've told this or not. I feel like maybe I've told this. For those of you who've, who've heard it, you know, bear with me for a little bit. In February, I got to baptize my daughter, Ella, um, our oldest. She's eight years old, and she'd been asking for some time to be baptized. And I kept waiting because I really wanted to make sure she knew what she was jumping into here, what she was getting into. But finally, we decided, okay, we're going to baptize you here. In a couple weeks, we're going to do this whenever, you know, we can get some family together. And so she's so excited. And they had this thing in her first grade class where, um, it's like news of the week where a kid, one kid gets to stand up in the class and share some special news. And it's usually something like, you know, this week I'm getting a puppy or, you know, I, whatever, stared at the eclipse and survived or something like that, okay? <laughs> so some, some sort of news. Well, Ella gets up and she gets to share her news and her news is this. My name is Ella Moss and my news for you is that soon I'm going to be a new person. And this, of course, blows some first graders' minds because they're like... <laughs> So are we going to have like a new student in class or like what's, they, they, they don't quite get, but what Ella was hitting on is this idea that in that moment when she gives her life to Jesus, that she becomes marked as a new person. She becomes a new creation. So this is the crazy part. Because of that, now the whole thing I said to you about Ezekiel standing here and telling you that you cannot live out the image, that part was a lie. That's not actually true anymore. Because of the prophecy that, Jesus, that Ezekiel made, now you can't. Now, those who give their lives to Jesus actually receive the Holy Spirit and receive a new heart, and you have the ability to do what you were always made to do. Represent God and His glory as you were designed to, to rule and care for creation and others on His behalf, and to relate to Him in perfect relationship, father to son, father to daughter, just like you were always designed to. And we see that this is starting now 
in, in His people. But one day, the Bible tells us in Revelation, one day God will come back and Jesus will come back and He will not just do this in His people, He will do this across the world. And He will make the entire world what it was meant to be, making a new heavens and a new earth. And the kingdom of God, the dwelling of God, the glory of God will reign in and through His people for all time at that moment. This is what Paul means when he says all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is, that the answer to all of these questions is Jesus. That is, that everything that God ever said he was going to do to bless the world, to make a kingdom of priests, that's us now, by the way, the church, to rescue his people and to dwell with them and to have someone rule forever, the answer to every promise that God ever made is Jesus himself. Here's where the world differs. When the world asks these questions, I told you earlier, the the world is always asking their own questions, those questions are always human-centered, and they try to find the answers in humans as well. So, what is our purpose, and can we ever attain to it? The answer is, well, if we can just build up enough knowledge and enough understanding that we can get there. How can we make the world right? Well, if we can just get everybody to understand that we're all inherently good people, and we can just be nice to each other, then we can make things right. How can we get to God? The answer in every religion is follow these five pillars, or follow this eightfold path, or do these kinds of things to get yourself to God. Christianity is different because it asks all the questions centered around God, and it finds God in all the answers. The answer to every one of those three questions is this. God the Father sending God the Son to live and die and resurrect by the power of God the Spirit. That's the answer to every one of those things. But sometimes even Christians like to twist the Bible around and make it about me. The Bible is the story of how I get to heaven. No, it's not. It tells you that, but that's not the point of it. The Bible tells me how I ought to live. It does that. That's not the point. The Bible shows me how to live the fullest kind of life. That's not what the Bible is about. The Bible, all of it, from front to back, is about this one person, Jesus. And it's all about who he is and what he's done. And you need to grasp this. You are not the hero in your story. You're not even the main character that the hero swoops in and saves at the end. You're not even the damsel in distress or whatever you want to be, okay? You're not the main character. The main character in all of history and the main character in your own story is Jesus himself and who he is and what he's done. That's good news, by the way, because that means you don't have to spend your whole life trying to figure out who you really are and what your identity is and trying to find it because Jesus says, I already gave you that. And you don't have to waste your time toiling to build up a puny little kingdom of yours, a kingdom of success and fame and money, because God invites you into his. And it's way better anyway. And you don't have to spend all your time trying to figure out how to be a right person and how to be good and how to live your best life now because God says, I've already made you my son. I've already made you my daughter. I've already made you righteous in Jesus. This is the gospel-centered life, to be able to recognize that truth and let the things that Jesus has done, his work and identity, shape every area of your life. This is what we want for you. This is our heart and our prayer for you above all things, is that you would see Jesus and the gospel rightly, and you would let that flow into every area of your life. It doesn't mean, again, that you don't do good things. It just means that all those good things are a response to what Jesus has done, and all of those good things are empowered by the spirit that Jesus gives. This is our prayer for you, and I actually want to pray that as we end tonight, and we'll be done.
Dear God, sometimes, I, uh, sometimes I'm overwhelmed by the amount of stuff I'm even trying to say, and I know that people in here have to be overwhelmed by it. So Lord, I, I just pray this, that your, your spirit would let this stick, and, and not just be a bunch of cool knowledge that we got, but that you would drive this into our hearts. Please do that and change us by the gospel. Let us be people who are completely shaped by Jesus' work and his identity. Um, I ask that over myself and over these students in here, that you would make us into your image through the gospel this year. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Hey, just a few things before we're done. First of all, next week we don't actually have the table. And the reason why is because next week is the first football game. And so it's a home football game. It's going to be crazy. So here's what we are doing actually, though. At 4 o'clock, the doors are open here, and we're going to be cooking out. And we'll have food here for you guys and games and all that stuff. So come hang out. If you don't, uh, if you don't have tickets to the game, you can watch the game here. Otherwise, you can come eat food here and then head to the game. Other thing is this. We're just saying a couple things. We are, just so you know, every, every Wednesday we're on campus. And so we'll be hanging out in the Union. We would love to have as many of you guys as want to. If you're free Wednesday between 11 and 1, come to the atrium there in the Union and hang out with us. We'd love to be around you there. Lastly, Haley has a quick announcement about worship stuff.